we all matter. We are all part of this and we need one another. I can't do data science well if the data is not reliable, if it's not trusted, if it's not connected to the business via metadata, via a data management program that touches anyone. And so it's really a mind, uh, a change of, of mindset from you can add value as a, a team in isolation to, well, not really. Data is the common denominator to everything we do. Whether we like it or not, everything we do generates data. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today has been passionate about information and data for over 15 years, and he's on a mission to make data reliable, discoverable, and ready to power analytics. He's earned a PhD in physics with a specialization in quantum photonics and was hired as the first data scientist at an organization before making his way into data architecture. As soon as he entered the data world, he learned firsthand that the data science hype that gave him a job also created a gap between perception and reality. Having lived these problems firsthand, he decided to start what is now the Data Project a podcast to bridge the gap between data users and data experts. Through the data project, he speaks about the non-technical challenges in data and information management, hoping to inspire a healthier and more effective way to work with data. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who views data through a human lens, Loris Marini. Loris, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, I'm absolutely excited to chat with you. You know, I'm going through a lot of the same challenges that you have gone through before as the first data scientist in our organization and then bridging that gap. Yeah. So I'm excited to chat with you. But before we get into all that, man, let's learn a little bit more about you. Uh, Where did you grow up and what was it like there? Yeah, so I... I grew up in uh, in Rome, I would say, uh, you know, technically not the center. So we're talking about 45 to an hour drive away from the center on a Sunday in the middle of August. <laughs> on a Monday, on a typical Monday, it probably take two hours because it's it's congestion and so it's a big mess. Um, now Rome is beautiful, man. It's it's a beautiful city, obviously. I mean, it's very famous in the world for 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 the, the history and the museums and the cathedrals and the art in general. But it's also a pretty, a pretty intense place to live because, it, you know, Italy is not famous for its smooth bureaucracy, I guess. 
so we, we have our challenges and and that means that basically everything you want to do takes a lot of time and patience so it's never a straight line from a to b you kind of have to <laughs> you have to go around many many corners sometimes new corners appear the landscape changes in front of your very eyes and you're like how the hell is this making any sense but yeah so th this is the context 45 so it's a city that's actually to my surprise very famous it's it's called tivoli and it's uh, a 10 minutes drive from Villa Adriana, one of the, the ancient villas of the Roman Empire. Adriano, the emperor, used to used to live there. And I literally like my my family uh, house is like five minutes walk from from the ruins of this of this old emperor. Uh, the the place is beautiful, but you would expect something, you know, the walking in Villa Adriana and find, you know. Something that resembles a villa, but it's actually just a big piece of land because it's been so much from, uh, you know, t time, I guess, took its uh, toll. And now they're really just a bunch of ruins. Yeah, man. Italy is beautiful. I've been to Rome once many years ago. It was probably like 2008. That was the first and only time I went to Rome. I did drop some coins in the Trevisi fountain. So I guess that yeah. I'm, I'm due back at some point in life. But yeah, it, it, like I love Rome. I love I love Italy. The Mediterranean in general is uh, that that region is absolutely beautiful. I love it there. So yeah. So what the heck is quantum photonics, and how did you get into that? <laughs> That's a good question. Quantum photonics is the study of light and how light interacts with matter. And because it's at the very at the, the small scale, and because we're interested in very feeble light sources in very, very tiny pieces of matter, it gains the word quantum, meaning that it just follows a whole bunch of very unintuitive properties that you wouldn't find in, uh, in the microscopic world. The big why people bother study quantum photonics is that in, in the last 20, 30 years, we have enjoyed a very smooth and predictable Morse law, which is, you know, predicts the doubling of number of transistors in any CPU every 18 months and has been, you know, holding true, very empirical. There isn't no, no particular closed mathematical formula for that, but, you know, uh, more notice this pattern and has been uh, going for a long time. And it's only in the last five to 10 years, uh, we noticed a, a, you know, saturation of that trend. And, and now it's a reason why our MacBook Pro 16 inch today doesn't have you know, 10 times or 12 times the number of transistors they used to be, used to have 10 years ago, or we'll see, five years ago. And so kind of people are wondering, you know, what, what's going to be next? And, you know, we can't pack more transistors in the same chip. What else is there? And luckily for us in the 60s and 70s, the scientific communities, particularly this, the theoretician, developed a framework to try and understand quantum mechanics, the behavior of electrons, of protons, of photons, of phonons. So every so these are all very scientific names to mean very, very tiny perturbations. Like a phonon is the is a perturbation in vibration. So the, the smallest amount of vibration you can think of below which there is nothing, that's called a phonon. And a photon obviously is, is the equivalent for light. It's the smallest electromagnetic perturbation that you can think of. So it's the smallest amount of electromagnetic energy. Uh, the same as the electron is the smallest uh, like element in terms of positive and negative charges. And so all these smallest building blocks, uh, they come together and they exhibit 
very interesting properties. For example, you know, one, a famous one is, is teleportation or another big one is the spooky action at a distance. The favorite, there's a very famous paper of Einstein that was published a few years before he died. He, he, was, he was trying to understand how the heck is possible that you take two particles, you make them interact in some way, and then you bring them at an infinite distance one from the other and there are certain conditions under which you can, if you change the state of one, say you flip it or you mirror it, the other one does the opposite and complement, like the complementary flip by itself, no matter how far they are. And so he couldn't understand this. And uh, so he was trying, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah, and man, um, that stuff is crazy. It gets weird when you start getting at that really, really small, small level, right? Like that. Um, I was interviewing Max Frenzel who's also a physicist. He's currently based out of Japan and he yeah. researched in like quantum thermo something. And Dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. He was looking at how to uh, build the smallest engine possible. And I was like, dude, this stuff is so oh, cool. Wow. So I mean, how'd you go from like, like this awesome, crazy physics stuff into data science? Yeah. It was, it just happened by chance. Like most things in life, right. As much as we like to plan, there's a whole bunch of quantum randomness. <laughs> I was having a, a beer with a friend towards the year three of my PhD. And I was in the middle of you know writing my thesis, basically. I was studying writing my thesis. More. And uh, I had an interest in machine learning because before my PhD, I, I did some research here in the uni with uh, the group of Branka Vucetic uh, in uh, telecom, electrical engineering, they call it here but it was really information engineering. They were look, I was looking at applying reinforcement learning uh, to the problem of minimizing latency in, an, in a cellular network. So you get a bunch of phones and there's some popular content. You can imagine a library of you know, 100 very popular files. And the question is, can we cache those files? And how should we cache it? Which files should go where so that the overall network experiences the fastest service possible? And it turns out to be one of those the mathematicians call non-polynomial hard problems, which means that you can't really, yeah, you, you can't solve it with a brute force approach. You have to come up with a better, with another way. So the optimal solution is not, is out of reach. And all you can do is hope to find the sub, the closest suboptimal to the optimal in a reasonable amount of time. So it was interesting. Like I basically looked at a, the literature and I found this paper that was suggesting to approach the, the problem as a game theory problem and deploy a bunch of individual actors or players, they call it learning automata, terrible name, very unmarketable. But the idea is that you got these nodes and they take actions and look at the environment and based on what they see and what they feel, they make, them, they make a choice. They say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cache these files. And then as everybody does this and everybody listens to everyone else, if the system agrees on rewards and penalties, the idea is that the whole latency will go down. And so you reach us something that's very close to the optimal in a super short amount of time by distributing sort of the responsibility of finding the best combination to, to a whole bunch of, of individuals. That's super, super fascinating. That's wow. Yeah, I really loved that piece of research, but it was very short. It was like six months, and I, I, I was mostly coding it at the time in MATLAB and, and proving that you know it worked in that context too, uh, as long as we made a whole bunch of assumptions, and that was, that was useful and interesting. But 
it connects to my PhD because <laughs> I was technically a staff member. I was a research assistant and I had access to a whole bunch of courses that the university provides to staff. And one of those was how to be like a path to become a better lecturer. And I always loved teaching. So I was like, I'm going to check it out. So I go in this, in this big room and I find, and I find this, what then became my supervisor. I was there, he was new, was setting up a team and he asked a question to the professor and I kind of picked up his accent. I was like, this guy's Italian, I should, should go and check, you know, say hi. I say hi. And he said, I've got a laser lab that I'm putting together. Do you want to check it out? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so that was love for first sight. When I, when I saw the, the lab, you know, the, I just, I just fell in love. I, I couldn't resist. Man. And, and then so that was kind of your entry into just going from, from hardcore physics and research, went to data science and doing data science type of work. And then eventually you were hired as the first data scientist at an organization. So yeah. talk to us about that experience and, and how did that experience, I guess, lead you into the data project? Yeah, so it was a very direct entry line. Like there wasn't, there wasn't a position that the company did not advertise for a data scientist. They probably didn't even know that they needed somebody to look at the data and do something with it. It was more, it was this friend of mine back to the famous beer that I mentioned at the beginning. We were having this chat about my PhD and, and this, this problem of reinforcement learning. And he got super interested. He was at the time, the lead developer was working on an internal project to, to improve the way the data was stored. So it was distributed system kind of work. Very interesting. So when I say distributed, like, I guess that was the keyword that resonated with him and said, we should talk. So I invited him over for a beer. Before I knew, I had a conversation with the CEO and the CTO. And they were like, sounds like we should give this a go. But it was very unstructured. So I was brought in as, you know, you're going to help us figure out how we can, uh, what, what can we monetize? You know, how can we extract value from our data? But there was absolutely no plan whatsoever. There was no inventory. There was no, yeah, it was, it was very random. I'm sure that many people resonate with that situation yeah. and... It was also the 2017, uh, I guess, the, the peak of the hype, at least, or maybe not the peak, but we were coming down, but still strong enough here in Sydney or in Australia. You know, strong enough that when the CEO looked at my what I'd done in the past and looked at what they wanted to do in the future, he, he, he saw an opportunity and said, you should, you should come in. So for that, I'm grateful because it was a fantastic experience. <laughs> I learned a lot, but it didn't come without challenges. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those challenges, man, because that's, that's the interesting stuff, right? Cause I mean, like I, I was kind of hired on the same premise and I'm you know, still absolutely love my company, love my job, but it was the same kind of thing that you're talking about. Like, Oh, we've got a possible idea to do something. And then you do that. And then all of a sudden you start looking around at the rest of the data they have in the organization. You're like, Oh my God, this is everywhere. Like, I don't know how to, how to do anything with this. Yeah. So, so when you, when you talk about the, the, the gaps between reality and expectation, like, what did that look like when you were, you know, venturing out as a first data scientist? Yeah, uh, so I think there's many gaps, actually. I, I, I would decompose it at least in, uh, in two parts. Well, the first thing is a high level. So, you know, trying to understand what the company really wants to do and map that to the data that they, they already have. And then, you know, venture into the process of, okay, now we don't, now, now, now that we know exactly what we want to do, say you want to build a recommendation system, then you start looking at the problem with that, with that pair 
you know, with those lenses, you know, I need, I need to find anomalies. So you might look into a, a log database. In that case, we were using Elasticsearch and try to understand how that correlates with the actual app. In this case was a MarTech company, so really a SaaS company, so that we had, I had access to a lot of data. So the data volume wasn't a problem. They were right. The data was there. What wasn't there was the connection between the data and the user. You know, how, when you, when you drag and drop a shape, you know, we had this concept, and I still, Autopilot still has it, of a, a canvas that you can bring shapes and build a graph, really, a piece of logic for your marketing campaign. So be that, you know, trigger a, an email or react to when somebody fills in a form on a website. Very interesting stuff. But, and, and it all made sense in the heads of the developers, of the, of the designers, people that were deep into into the product. But when you come in from the outside and you're looking at, at this picture, the first question is, once you understand the strategy, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to build a recommendation engine. The immediate next step is, okay, what, how does that, where, where is the data? And then once you find it, how does that data connect to the actual app, to that drag and drop experience, to, you know, the, the state machine really, that it surely is there, but it's rarely documented, particularly in startups. So there was a lot of context building, a lot of dumb questions that I had to ask. Two people that looked at me and said, this is obvious, you know, why don't you just read this repository? So sometimes I would get back a link to a GitHub repo or an issue that was open where somebody detailed the logic of, of that portion of the system, starting from an issue that somebody else had. So long scrolls until so it's really, it's really time consuming when you don't have any inventory, you know, some a curator, almost a trustee, a la Doug Lenny, of, of data, right? Somebody that knows where sit, things sit and how they connect together and can connect the business to the data. And so kind of in that environment, in that, you know, doing that work, you somehow managed to find your way into data architecture. So talk about that transition. What was that transition like? What, what made you be like, oh my God, I need to, I need to put the data science down, pick up the data architect stuff. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. It was just pure need, really. Like we, we, when when those first problems are solved, you typically find yourself in front of a, you know, an, an R notebook or a Jupyter notebook. Uh, I was working in Python at the time, and I had a sample of the data set. I had my model and I had an output. And I remember three months in, we had the proof of concept. You know, we, we had we had the system. It was working. It was it was giving us the type of predictions that we wanted. It was easy to understand, so that interpretation box was was ticked, and the CPO was happy. The CTO ecstatic, like we've got it, we've got it. You know, now we can go and and change the world. And what me what was missing was the deployment and data ops side. So how how do you go from a thing that works in Jupyter to a thing that can serve twenty thousand paying customers with minimal latency? So all that engineering bit, and I think. We at the time we uh, we underestimated it, um, and so that's where the second element, which is so strategy, was the first. The second one is literacy. There's a tendency I, I found to for people that are really deep in software development to um, assume that data is just like software development, but you just need a bigger hard drive, right? 
And that's all that's all that changes. And I, th- I think this is wrong. It's dangerous. It's very hard to change the mentality because I see why you would make that that logical connection. But data is not software like software development. And uh, there are there are intrinsic challenges. And one one of the immediate things that pop up is the monitoring that you have to do to to guarantee the certain performance for the algorithm because everything everything shifts. You know, the input data moves over time. The and if the model doesn't adapt to those changes, you, you're gonna get wrong predictions or a behavior that is suboptimal. And you might not know that, but eventually you know, the users will feel it. And what's worse of um, a messy system is an un, an invisible, undiscoverable mess. So the, it's, it's it's all nice and good to you know be agile and go for the for the low hanging fruit. That's in, very important in any change management project. And this was a change in management, really, because it's a new function for the business. It's a new, it's a new way of thinking. But you have, you've got to think big picture as well. And so that's where the architecture came in. It was a need to say, we should take a step back. Now we know we've got something valuable. Let's see what is the best way we can deploy it. What is the infrastructure that we need to make sure that we're not going to be awake at 3 a.m. responding to a pingdom notification because a server is down or because the insights are not there, the cache didn't load properly or didn't refresh properly. And so all of this very practical engineering concerns. So speaking of engineering, dumb question here, because even I'm a bit shaky on the definitions here. Like what is the difference between data engineer and a data architect? Yeah, I don't think there is a universally accepted definition of the two but uh, the way that i think it is an architect should really be focused on the fundamental foundational kind of choices that are hard to change that are really expensive to change like the an example that i make often is the highway you know if you're building a new highway to connect two cities you will have to make a bunch of decisions like you know how many lanes how wide should the lane be if you're designing an exit What's the curve radius of the exit? Are you gonna you know, turn 90 degrees in 100 meters or in a kilometer? Those are foundational questions. When, once you decide that, the skeleton, you can't just change it quickly. You can just uh, make an exit to 200 meters long instead of a kilometer long. You have to redesign the road, you have to rebuild the systems around it. So changes are really expensive. Engineering is uh, more concerned about how once you know what the skeleton looks like, how do you make, how do you optimize it? How do you make sure that the systems run smoothly, reliably? And so, yeah, that's that's my view. I'm curious about your definition. What? How do you see the difference and like, between? I don't like. I really don't really truly understand the difference between a data architect and a data engineer. I know that. I, I just say, okay, well, when I hear data architect, to me, like it equates to like software architect, meaning that this is the person who kind of like draws the maps and, you know, does the the diagrams and kind of makes the plan for everything, but then leaves the actual implementation of those details to somebody to to code up. And that person who codes that up is maybe a data engineer. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that, except that I'm, I'm more and more I'm thinking, does the abstraction of detail have to be there to make the distinction because a famous example is devops right the 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 movement that we all familiar with in software development the concept that you don't you can't separate development from operations because 
development is the phase where you're thinking about a new idea, you have the high level, you know, concept. Operations is the team that actually has to make that happen reliably at scale. And so if you separate those two, what tends to happen is that you make assumptions in development that are not going to be true in operations and people in ops will have problems. And this is true in software, but it's true in uh, in food as well. There's a, a very practical example uh, from uh, from my wife. She used to work at a food company uh, in the NPD, the new product development team. So all about dev, <laughs> developing the concept, developing the the new idea, the new recipe. And then ops was in charge of, okay, now you have to make, you know, a thousand liters of this soup by, you know, next week. And so they had that kind of problem. So I think it's more of a, it's across industries. So we need to bridge this too. And with uh, going back to the architecture that you just mentioned, I think an architect that just focuses on the high level stuff without taking into account the details is not doing a good job, I think. Yeah, I think you gotta be able to go up and down. It's just a matter of what you focus more. Yeah, you gotta have kind of both the the clouds and and the dirt there. I mean, obviously, like <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I definitely you could see the ignorance I have towards what these roles do. What do you think a data scientist, at a minimum, I guess, should know about data architecture and and the role that a data architect plays? It's it's a good question. I th- I think. It's hard to answer because the the the, data, the word data scientist is is very cloudy as well. But I'm gonna make a bunch of assumptions to to simplify the problem. So if we assume that a data scientist is somebody tasked with the with taking some raw data and extracting useful information out of it, useful and actionable information, and that's it. You know, just just. Just that bit is not responsible for putting the stuff in production, is not responsible for making systems reliable. So it's, it's really just the scientist, not the engineer. Then I would say knowing about modeling is enough, but this is an abstraction. Is the assumption I just made is very far from the truth. In in real life, you cannot decouple those two. Uh, and so in a sense, I'm not surprised that the term data scientist is not well-defined because it kind of appeals to the, um, the end goal. I want to extract data, information from that. Okay, great. That's the useful bit, but how are you going to do it? And you don't need just science. You don't need just engineering or architecture or design. You kind of need everything at once. And so I'm a big fan of this holistic view. I don't think anyone can... Uh, it's, it's not useful to put people inside a box and say, this is exactly what you're going to be con- concerned with and everything else, just ignore it. It's you, it, it, it can be useful as long as we, we make those edges a little bit more soft. You know? So we have, this is your concern, but as a data scientist, you're concerned about modeling maybe, but you should take into account what's around you. And I don't know, what, what's your view? Blurry to me. I think I forgot what my question was somewhere in there, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Like when, so we just hired a data architect at my company. He's a software developer that we kind of moved up the ranks and he's acting as a data architect and he's very much so has like the software development mindset. And me as somebody who's just a statistician, academic type of statistician, having to understand where software development's coming from and then now trying to understand where a data architect is coming from. It's, it's been extremely challenging for me. 
But yeah, to, to answer your question about what I think a data scientist should know about data architecture, first of all, just maybe trying to understand what it is that an actual data architect does and how the work that they do enables your work to be a bit easier, right? Because I think as data scientists, at the end of the day, we ultimately are end users of data, right? I mean, I'm beginning to realize that more and more now as I try to help my company develop a data strategy is that all my life, I've just been somebody who uses data as an end result, right? Like it has some origination and lineage far before I, I come in contact with it. And I think that the way I see it is that maybe a data architect is somebody who, who is more involved in that, you know, how, how the real world phenomenon is generating data and how are they capturing that and, and storing it and disseminating it through an organization. That's kind of my understanding of what the data architect does, but I definitely could be completely wrong. Yeah, it's definitely one way to look at it. It's also easy to absorb. The one that I have in mind, I, I sometimes I get a lot of pushback when I talk about my interpretation of that architecture from, from engineers, because we like to put labels on ourselves and to identify what we do and who we are in ourselves with what we do and what and you know, so the question is, I am you know, a data engineer or I am a data scientist, but I think those labels are less and less useful when you try to focus on, on the outcome. We all really all in this together, right? We want to we want to use data to allow somebody to make a more informed decision at some point, whether it's the, the ultimate paying customer or somebody internally. So if that's the goal, there isn't really it's not helpful to put ourselves in boxes. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I like and that, that are yeah. The soft edges that you're talking about and, and that really just talks about your human centric kind of approach to data that I like that. Yeah, I, th I think it's necessary approach. We need to we need to be flexible and take different learn to take different perspectives. Doesn't mean that we have to you know one person has to do everything because it's unrealistic. That's exactly not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that it's useful to learn um, our brains to absorb and actually wear a different perspective, a different view, because it's there are it can be eye opening, it can be very insightful. You start thinking like a data architect, even if you are just in the visualization team, right? Because they ask questions that may be helpful for you too. Um, so thinking about the connections, the dependency uh, between systems. You know, if I make a change here, how many systems will be impacted? That impact analysis is something that's useful, whether you are putting together a dashboard or you're, you know, designing a data warehouse or a a data an ETL system. I think uh, it, it just applies across uh, across the pipeline. So, talk talk to us a bit about the the data project, the the podcast, and and kind of like the initiative that you're starting with the data project. Is it in an attempt to kind of help soften these edges that you're talking about and help blur the lines between these? different identities that we box ourselves into and just help us all realize that we're here at the end of the day to make someone's life easier with data. Talk to us a little bit about that. If I got your mission like right or was I just... It's, a, it's, it, it's the perfect description. <laughs> I don't think I can describe it better than you just did. Yes, it's exactly that. It's the realization that we need 
we need if we it's an assumption it's an untested assumption you know the data project is an experiment but it comes from the idea that if we know what it feels like to be the other box <laughs> we can uh, we can make choices in our day to day that will improve the overall fluency of the system so that we can go literally from the row log in the database to an impact to an actual human being, not only faster, but in a way that's more sustainable, that makes us happy to go to work, that makes us proud of what we do and feel part of a bigger system, that we don't have to fight with the architect, we don't have to fight with the data owner because the data is mine and it's not yours and you don't have visible. You know, there are challenges in any organization, but I dream of a world where no matter who you are in data, no matter where you're in the pipeline, you can add value quickly because you understand your place in the bigger and the bigger system. Yeah, I like that. I mean, just you think of yourself as part of the system, not just separate from the actual system itself, kind of. One note that I that I like to add here is that um, when I started, I was hired as a data scientist, I suppose. But and there was a really a huge, a big difference in average salary between an analyst and a scientist. Um, I don't think that's helpful, to be honest. I might, yeah. No, no. It really isn't because it, it reinforces this idea that you are up, you know, that you have a higher status as a, as a scientist. Maybe you have a PhD, maybe you've done some science or some research. And so that makes you a smarter person. I hate that. I'm trying to really decompose that, that message and just saying, look, we all matter. We are all part of this and we need one another. I can't do data science well if the data is not reliable, if it's not trusted if it's not connected to the business via you know metadata via a data management program that touches anyone and so it's really a mind uh, a change of of mindset from you can do you can add value as a, a team in isolation to well not really data is the common denominator to everything we do whether we like it or not everything we do generates data and and when you touch data, you touch inevitably finance, marketing, operations. Uh, so we need to think more globally. 100% agree with that, man. I don't like this. Like, okay, so I, data science in general, the field is a broad umbrella category. There is a lot that goes under this umbrella of data science. Like, yes, there's the classical title data scientist, but the data analyst is also in data science. Business intelligence person is also in data science. Yes. Data engineer is also in data science. Data architect is in data science. Like to, I don't know what this, why it has become a status hierarchy game and why they have turned this data science profession into this, this like just status signaling with the title. And people are like, oh, I'm just a data analyst. I, no, I'm just a data analyst. I can't do, you know, <laughs> like, nah, man, like people who, I feel like people who are constantly like making these type of infographics about data scientists versus data analysts or whatever, they're creating divisions and and maybe they're just trying to status signal themselves like, oh, I'm a data scientist. And it's like, dude, all right, well, data scientist means a lot of th things like you're just talking about, right? Like I'm a data scientist. Yeah, but I'm primarily a statistician, like first and foremost, like you talk about deep learning being first. I don't know how to do any of that shit, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it, it turns into a status game, which I'm, fundamentally do not like playing those type of games it's not useful yeah yeah 
so I, I got a chance to read through a lot of the uh, blog posts that you have on the data project. And I feel like there's so many good bits of wisdom and insight in there. Um, I'd love to, to get a little bit into that. Uh, there's a, a post that you're talking about the difference between data, information, knowledge, and strategy. Talk to mm -hmm. us about that. Um, that w what's the difference between these? How, how, do, how does data, information, and knowledge play into a strategy? Yeah, I mean, this is a, um, when I wrote it a year and a half ago, I thought there was something, you know, kind of new to it. But as I started reading around blogs, I realized that it's uh, many, many people uh, have expressed very similar ideas. And I guess that's just the reality of everything we do. But the, really the, the idea is that, that data is useless when you don't, when you don't act on it. That's, that's the premise. And acting, the, the acting per se, really is, is not the right word because you can always act on a piece of data. You, know, you, do, you look at, you take any data set, you make a simple aggregation like count by a categorical variable and you've got an insight already that tells you the distribution of you know, number of records per SKU or per item cost, price tag or whatever. So you can you can always do something with it, but that's not what we want to do. We don't just want to act on it. <laughs> we want to act in the best possible way. And best possible way means to align our action, our next steps to what the business wants to achieve ultimately. So you can't really decouple uh, anything we do in data from the business. And so going back to that separation, the, seeing data as a specialized function, as somebody that is, sits in a team and is disconnected from a business is not useful. And the article tr is trying to explain that, but get, uh, it's trying to get at the bottom of that. From, perhaps it's a little bit more philosophical It's because my background is information theory. But if you look at it, data is just a way to measure the world around us. It's, an, you know, it's what results from the act of observe, observing. So we observe and we collect a trace of what we see. From that trace, we need to extract information. And that means to learn the new things that we didn't know before. Um, so if you, if you look at the definition, the strict mathematical definition of information, um, information is entropy, is, is a measurement of how much we can predict the state of the system. So if I was to open a book and read always the same word over and over and over until the end of the book. That would be a very boring read. It would contain very little information because as, as soon as I read the first word, I know exactly what the book is, is going to be about. It's just the same word over and over. Whereas a book that, and this is obviously an example, it doesn't apply 100%, but the, it's a concept to, to explain what information is, right? If the book uses a whole bunch of different words and different concepts, Sentences are not all one-liners, but you know, some have long periods, some short periods. My ability to predict what I'm going to read next goes down. And that means the book is, is giving me a lot of information. It's surprising me in a way. And, and if you look at it, as I'm sure you know, many of the algorithms that we use in classification are based on information theory of that of looking at the data set and understand what the entropy literally the entropy looks like regression like uh, classification trees or uh, random forests i suppose are a good example of that and so if you look at it at the difference between data information this way the next step is okay once you've been surprised some once you've 
read something that you weren't expecting before, so you acquired information, then what do you do with it? So there's still that extra step. And that requires to understand the context around the decision. So uh, I used to, I changed my, my mind a little bit because I used to, coming from the, a background on information theory and telecommunications, it was just about machines, right? You got a satellite up there, 40,000 kilometers, you got an antenna on the ground and 95, diff, 96 different beams radiating power at each other. And you're tasked with the, with the you know, how do, uh, how do I design the system so that I can transfer as much information from A to B as possible. But in real life, when we work with data, there are no machines, there are humans, and you can't segment and isolate a piece of, of work from the bigger context in which the business operates. And that's the challenge that I'm really excited about, is connecting the dots, is, is making sure that when we act on a piece of data to extract information, we know how that's going to be used. So I'm really talking about design and I'm a big fan of the work that Brian O'Neill is, is doing. I'm a big fan of his podcast as well that really changed my, enriched my understanding of what design is. A lot of people think it's all about, you know, aesthetics and making things that are pleasant to see, but it's not. Design is about asking the question, how are you going to use it? Let's try to make it as useful as possible. What's the name of that podcast by Brian O'Neill? Uh, experiencing data experiencing or data. data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have to check that one out. Hopefully, I can talk to the guy, get him on the show one of these days. But I like that. I really that that to me makes really intuitive sense, right? There's a real world, right? The real world exists as a byproduct of observing the real world. We are able to collect data, but to go from data to information, it's you know, data by itself is just like raw rows and and whatever, right? Like like for example, you gave your an example about a book like data in itself could be me just going through and writing the going through every book in my in my library here just cataloging the book's color the book's genre and the length of pages in each book and i just have one row for every one of that that's just data in itself but that in itself isn't really useful it's when i start creating information and start doing aggregations with that and start saying okay well you got a bunch of books the average page count is this, your most read genre is, is this, so on and so forth. Right? So is that kind of, kind of what you meant? Yes. And, and the first part that you mentioned is, is the one that I think is more, is, is, is more challenging from a, an organization perspective. Because as a data scientist, if you have the right data set and a very specific question and you know what you're doing, you can get an answer you know, very quickly. Um, so that in itself is a, I, I see it as a single node type of challenge. You know, you have one person that knows what they're doing, they have the right ingredients and they can they can come up with a useful output. But it's never like that in reality. You know, getting that list of books in a real organization is very, very hard. And as data scientists, you know, or let's say folks with an interest in modeling and statistics, we tend to assume that companies have their shit together and they have that inventory. There is a librarian that we can go and knock and ask for what, what is what, can we trust it? The problem is that's, that's not true. We're, we, so we, we're so naive. We're so naive. We're, we're so behind. You know, the whole information as an asset is a new concept. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of Doug Lenny and I'm reading his book now, Infonomics, and I find it extremely insightful because he, he literally takes all the stuff that I knew about information from an engineering and mathematical and statistical standpoint, and he sprinkles on top the economics bit, right? <laughs> so how do you monetize it? How do you think about that as an asset? What does it even mean information is an asset? What, what does it mean? And he, and he has this systematic approach and says, look, information is not depletable. You can have as, as many information people as possible simultaneously consuming the same amount of information. And once you have it, it scales in, inherently. It's not like oil, it's not like electricity. It's in that sense is renewable. Yeah, it's and uh, marginal, zero marginal cost of consumption, of replication, of, of use, and what have you, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, there are costs in uh, costs associated with um, managing it, like uh, getting the fundamental truth of the universe is that you know if you don't do anything, entropy is going to still in- increase, uh, regardless. So that's why we need to pay the electricity bill for our keep our food cold that's what the fridge does it's trying to reduce heat right lower the temperature reduce entropy that reduction of entropy is gonna cost money and there is no way around it that's a fundamental truth of physics so that's that's true in data too if we want reliable data if we want to be able as data scientists to rock up and say i'm gonna i understand the problem i can take data and within a day or less i have an mvp ready if we want to get to that level of efficiency or fluidity, we need to spend money. We need to spend resources to put order in the chaos. And we need to first start understanding that there is a status of chaos, that we don't really know what exists and who owns it and how is that connected to the rest of the business. So that's where my interest in data management came in after I, I looked at the modeling, then the, uh, the architecture. And then I said, okay, we, we need to go one step lower and, and start really focusing on the fundamental stuff, which is one, what I'm trying to do with data foundations. So let's talk about that, about data management. So we'll just take my case as an example. So I'm going through this at, at work, right? So I've got an initiative at work where they're telling me develop a data management strategy. I don't even know where to start. Right. So I've, I've been trying to educate myself. I've been reading books like a uh, data strategy, modern data strategy. I've been reading the data management toolkit. And then I've also got Scott Taylor's telling your data story. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, these are all been really helpful books for me to, to, to read, but you know, when it comes to actioning it, it's sometimes hard for me to, to start. Like I can look at all these stakeholder maps and identifying business drivers and things like that. But it's pretty challenging. And, you yeah. know, if, if, where, where does one start, right? Where do we start when we're trying to, to, from the ground up, grassroots movement, trying to implement a data strategy in an organization? I don't have a ton of experience. So uh, my answer is going to be based on a mix of intuition and what I've seen, right, in playing with, with change management. And I think... The grassroots idea is very important. You need to have people excited and understand the urgency of the problem that really feel the pain of, of the chaos around data and they want to do something about it. But as you said, data management is a, a program, not a project. Um, and it, its whole purpose should be to help the business achieve the vision. So I, I would say that I'm a big fan of Scott Taylor's book 
it makes a ton of sense. You got to start from the vision. Understand what the senior executives really want to achieve and take that and start asking questions on the ground to people that know, you know, what the status of things is. Do, do you have the data to, to back it up? Can we, can we achieve it? Can we actually do it? Or do we have to make up stuff? And in that sense is, is very much a human challenge. It's about motivating people and talking, you know, using their language to explain why data management matters. And perhaps an example, I was just listening to uh, Doug's latest podcast on the data futurology. And he mentions this, uh, this example of an airline that, you know, because of COVID, uh, planes weren't flying anymore. And all they had, they couldn't sell the planes because they didn't own it. They were leasing it. And so they went to the bank and said, look, all we have is this customer loyalty data. Uh, what can we do with it? So they got a specialist to look at it and, and understand the, the value of the asset. And it turned out that <laughs> the data set itself was worth three times more the company. So that blew my mind, right? That's what we don't, we don't realize. And I, I get it because we're not used to think about information as something that we can monetize. But once you take that perspective, it becomes more, way more compelling. You can go and talk to a CEO and say, look, <laughs> let's, let's talk about bottom line. Let's talk about what you want to achieve. And, and let's understand that there is already a ton of value in the data that you have. You cannot do anything with it because nobody, nobody is, is uh, looking after it. So look after your data because data encodes a relationship. No matter how you see it, no matter how you see it, even if you, if you look at two machines and the, the, just the data that flows between two robots, that those two machines are part of the organization. So they're, not, they're never in isolation. So there really isn't a case where you can you look at a piece of data or a, an amount of information and you say this has nothing to do with people. Because if we are in business, we are we're trying to do something for people, <laughs> whether our it's you know it's our partners, our suppliers, or the paying customers. So it's it's all about people in the end. And so caring about data, and here I'm echoing Scott Taylor, I can hear him <laughs> in my in my head. Caring about data is caring about relationships. So that's I think that that's a useful angle. Uh, to answer your question, how do you actually do it in practice? I think, I don't think anyone has a complete answer to that. I think uh, starting from the vision is useful. And once you've got that strong buy-in from the top, be, try, try to champion the communication between everyone involved. And it's really a collective effort, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that, popped in my head as you're talking about that story about the airline who found out that their data is actually worth three times more than the company itself. I think that's because the data itself creates opportunities where maybe they did not exist before. So it has potential for you to uncover new opportunities that could be worth monetizing. Whereas having a hangar full of airplanes, that just serves one purpose. You can fly from point A to point B. And that's really the only way you can use that particular asset. Exactly. Whereas, whereas data can be used and leveraged in multiple different ways. So it creates opportunities. Yeah. So the, the ground zero here is, is the literacy part. Like we need to make a better job as a data community, I think, to educate 
everyone around the value of, of that. And we have to speak the language of business. If we keep saying, if we keep talking about entropy and information, that's not, that doesn't resonate with the right people. You know, me and you, we can have a wonderful conversation about the physics of it all. And now that connects with, with the deepest mysteries of uh, the universe. But ultimately the world is, is you know, goes forward with, based on decisions that are made uh, by four or five senior executives in a room. And if they don't see it, if they don't get it, you nev- you're never going to get that strong support that you need to implement the program. You know, it's never going to see as a strategic imperative. It's always going to be perceived as a tax on someone's time. Oh, we need to, we need to look after the data. You know, we need to clean that, that those fields. We need to remove null values and people are like, ah, really? Like my performance is measured on how many, uh, recommendation uh, algorithms I can pull up together. If you want me to clean up that database, I'm going to lose so much time. And so, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's this my very limited, short-sighted mindset that we, that I think is hindering the new big challenge of how do we manage that. Yeah. I mean, because data is there to enable you to do other greater things, right? That's been a big thing for me is educating myself in the other aspect, the more the business type of aspect of stuff. Because I mean, to me, coding is fun. Doing machine learning is fun, but that's not really what the business actually cares about, right? Yeah, no, they don't. So, how do we create a culture then for for analytics to thrive in an organization? At, you know, let's say we're the first data scientist in an organization. We're coming in. We're just like, oh man, I love code. I love data. I love creating machine learning models. And then you get in and you're you're trying to do stuff, and and then you realize that your hands are tied because there's no there's no infrastructure in place. There's no desire for, or nobody cares about your fancy algorithms and, and anything like that. How can we start making a culture happen for, for success? I think it's, it's a fantastic question. It's something that keeps me awake at night, to be honest. I'm, I'm really battling with this. And I think the more I think about it, the more I realize that the moment when you are inside the organization as the first data scientist is already too late. You gotta, you gotta act way before that. It's like it's a huge pre-sale cycle. <laughs> I haven't cracked it. I, I don't have, I don't have an answer to be honest. But I think we need to speak more business language as data, data enthusiasts, and find those opportunities to talk about business first, and then how data can help the the vision uh, that the business has. Uh, but but we shouldn't shy away from because one challenge is when you talk to execs they have very short attention span they're busy with a billion other things so the concept of the elevator pitch kind of evolved <laughs> around the the idea that if you're lucky you get the chance to stand in the same elevator with with the decision maker if you're lucky and the elevator ride is never more than sixty seconds and so you got to punch all of that into sixty seconds I. I think we should stop thinking about the elevator pitch and more uh, recognize that data is is multifaceted, is complex in its nature. And uh, so I'm, I'm getting, a, you know, I, I have mixed feelings when I hear people, I oh, know we're making data simple. Mm, yes, you can structure it. I'm all for creating structure and chaos. I'm, I'm all for reducing interference and reducing noise. But in a lossless way. We need to be 
we need to be able to communicate the reality of the situation and avoid creating those uh, false expectations because it's all a matter of, you know, I've, I've seen what it is like when people expect you to be the genius that uh, solves all the problems and then you're not. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel good for you. It, it's, it's a waste of time for the business, even if it works. And in my case, we made it work. So that was positive, but, you know, a happy, happy ending after all. It's an, an isolated effort. It's not part of a machine. It's not part of this idea of uh, closing the circle, of creating that flywheel of you go one turn and then you go two turns and then four and then eight. And something that you can do, I mean, that, that uh, in that sense is the perfect medium to implement that concept of a flywheel because it's non-depleting. You know, you do things right today and you close that loop once, that stuff is going to be useful for someone else. Someone else. So one thing I'm really against is creating pipelines, is hiding pipelines in uh, in a language that only few specialized people understand. And Python, as much as we love it, and I and I love it, it still falls in the realm of IT, right? You get you're a software developer, you're someone that knows how to program, and that excludes immediately a lot of business people. Whereas with things like you know SQL. And I don't want to get into an argument about Python, you know, ETL versus ELT, but something like SQL that's more declarative, not imperative, it's way easier to create, to, to you know, educate people to understand it. And that's important because I, as a data analyst or data engineer or whatever you want to call me, I'm going to make assumptions no matter what. I will have to make assumptions because I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know the full picture as much as I strive to get it. And those assumptions are the pillars of everything that we will build in the future. So if those are hidden away, and I am the only one that can look at it, you, you, how, how do you achieve trust? How do you get somebody to trust what they're seeing? They have a dashboard and like, uh, I don't know, I just see a line that goes up, and, but where does it come from? So we should, uh, the, the tooling there is getting a lot better, but I think in terms of the, the literacy, it really pays off to have people in the organization to have the basic understanding of what of what is involved. And university is not the solution because uni is always 10, 15 years behind. So, so let's, let's roll it back a little bit. You're talking about, you know, if you're a first data scientist in the organization, it's already too late. And then we're talking about some of the challenges when it comes to, you know, transforming data and all that stuff. So uh, you wrote about this ladder of data needs. So, so talk about this ladder of data needs. It goes from data integration, data access, and, and data transformation. Kind of walk us through that process and then talk to us about why transformation, that part is so hard. Yeah. Well, the concept is very simple, really. Like you, the first step is if you want to work with data, it means you want to combine it together. You want to apply some logic. You want to extract information. You want to get an actionable insight, whatever it is you want to do with it, you first need to get the data, right? Um, so that means creating a, 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 the smoothest path from I need to do something new. I know the business problem. Now let's see what data is available and the moment in which you know what data is available and you can pull it together and you can start massaging, you know, plot it, filter it, start, start to understand it a little bit. And so the integration part is the first step, is turning... Instead of going and knocking 50 different doors to you know, get access to that Elasticsearch from the lead developer and then ask access to that 
MySQL database that somewhere it's the legacy system that still has valuable information, but nobody quite remembers who you know has <laughs> credentials for it or what is the policy to give you access in the first place. So you have to bag the CEO. Do you think I should get access? Of course you should get access. What are you talking about? You're wasting two weeks, you know, of time. Just get the data. No, I need the answer. So avoiding all that of all of that and bring the data in, in a place really where you can go knock one door, you have access and and you can start doing stuff with it. So integration first. The modeling is the second. So once you have it in, in, in one place, you have to be able to make sense of it to understand how it fits together. And so for that, you need structure. And I, I'm a big believer that value is comes from structure. If we just dump stuff in a, in a, in a lake, we end up, as we all know, with a data swamp, like an, an unstructured, undiscovered, maybe it is discoverable, but still, still pretty messy because you don't know what to trust. You don't know whether you should look at that record or that record. And how do they they fit together? So it's really, and that's the hard part. That's the part where you act as a fridge, right? You are lowering the temperature. You are you're increasing order. You're removing chaos, and that part is very, very expensive in terms of time and, and brain power. It involves a lot of context extraction. There's a lot of design that goes into that as well, and there's a lot of architecture, like asking those low fundamental questions of how do we lay out these assets so that we can keep growing the system. We can, instead of letting it evolve into a spaghetti code where you can't make a change anymore. So a lot of these concepts are very similar to the software development. Yeah, to software development. I think a lot of folks that, that love writing software are familiar with the, with the, with the concept of an evolutionary architecture. So how, how do you build that isolation between systems so that you can keep expanding them without losing track of, without getting, getting crazy. Uh, and then obviously the third, the third element is the consumption. So whether that's visualization or, or some modeling, that really comes downstream, but you have to establish that the truth first and you have to do it reliably. Unfortunately, there's no way to decouple the reliability part from, uh, you know, from the business correctness. Because an analyst could create a model that is accurate, you know, that reflects the business intentions, that reflects the, the reality of the problem and then answers the problem. But if the whole thing lives in an Excel sheet, it's not going to be useful for the broader organization. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. So, Loris, let's do one final question before we jump into the random round here. Oh, yeah. It's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I, a loving father. Yeah. Yeah. Helper, I suppose. Somebody that helped people as much as possible. Absolutely love it, man. And definitely I think you're doing that with your podcast and I'm excited to, to tune in and see your continued success with that. So make sure you guys, uh, I'll, I'll include links to all that stuff and we'll, we'll get to all your uh, social stuff in a bit here, but sure. yeah, I'll include links and everything for you there. So let's jump into the random round. All right. So as a physicist, what would you say is the most fundamental truth of physics that all human beings should understand? I know you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think it's the, the uncertainty principle, mm-hmm. a very humbling realization that we can never have a complete picture about a problem or about a situation that we're trying to observe and understand. In more like accurate terms, 
the principle really states that you cannot, there are two quantities that are, told, are said to not commute, which is a very strange term in physics, but what it really means, it's not about traveling from A to B. It, what it means is, is that you, like position and, and um, energy and momentum, and energy and time and position, momentum, I'm, I'm screwing the, the equation up because there are two versions, but there are two fundamental quantities that you cannot know with infinite accuracy. So if you know a lot about the position, you're, not, you're gonna have big uncertainty on the momentum of the particle and vice versa. And so the, the equivalent of position momentum is energy and time. So if you know exactly when you observed a particle, you, you'll have a huge uncertainty on its energy and vice versa. You know exactly the color of a photon, you, you cannot tell when you saw that photon. So it's kind of weird. That is interesting. I was going to ask you next, what do you think is the most mysterious aspect of the universe? Would you say that this uncertainty principle is that, or is there a different thing that is more mysterious than that to you? I think non-locality, non that stuff that we were talking about, that flipping yeah. state on one side and, and seeing that instantaneously flips on the other. It's kind of a mystery. A lot of people have uh, argued in the past that it was a violation of um, the speed of light limit. But it actually turns out that there is no information transferring. You know, no information is, ex is exchanged between those two particles. Because when you flip one, you know that deterministically the other one flips too. So you expect it 100%. And the fact that you expect it, you know it already, it means that there's no information. And so the speed of light is still safe, is the, is the, the fastest, the, the upper limit. It's mind-boggling to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will that video be about? I don't know when it will happen, but I'm sure it's going to be about a cat. Uh, that's like the most recurring answer so far to that question. So <laughs> everybody says some kind of a cat video. I'm going to just buy a bunch of cats now and start filming them. Putting out yeah, exactly. That'd be, it'd be nice on that part of the wall, the white side you have on your left. On your left. Yeah. <laughs> big, big cat meowing. <laughs> so who do people tell you that you look like? I don't get that, actually, a lot. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. What do you think I look like? I feel like you look like a young version of, of Walter White from, from Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i can see it you know <laughs> i can see that you know i'm laughing because i when i chose these glasses i actually wanted to buy a pair that looked a lot like the one that walter white that yeah. was wearing in the movie and my mom is the first thing you said she said on whatsapp she's like no you look like breaking bad i'm like yeah. okay <laughs> what are you currently reading yeah so i'm finishing in phonomics and the next one I, i'm reading insights which is a, a book on uh, self-awareness and introspection, which is really, really interesting. And um, my next one is actually going to be the CDO handbook and the second book that you show me in, uh, in your list, the, the toolkit. From uh, Ernestine Beek. Yes, yes, that's going to be my next. And I'm also excited about the Data Means Business and the Be Data Literate, the two other books that are ramping up quite heavily on LinkedIn. Nice. They're, yeah. they're new reads, but yeah. But, but I'm a big fan of Leading Change by uh, John Cotter, which I think is a, is a classic. And it's, uh, it's trying to put a lot of structure into 
you know, how, how do you make a change project success, successful? Definitely. I'll have to check some of those out for sure. I'm actually, I'm going to be interviewing Aaron Esteem Beak in a, a couple of weeks, maybe a month from now. I mean, time yeah. is going by so fast for me. So I'm looking forward to that. What song do you currently have on repeat? I am listening to an old album from Avantasia, the super band that I think it's from Finland. And they do this uh, progressive symphonic metal type of music. And I used to listen to them when I was a kid. And for some reason, I got back into it. <laughs> and I have them on repeat. So it's not a particular song, but anyone from the album Avantasia, I'm like, there's something about it. That maybe it's because I'm getting a bit melancholic <laughs> due to COVID <laughs> yeah. restrictions and stuff. So, yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Let's go to a uh, random question generator here. First question on this is, what's the last book you gave up on and stopped reading? I don't remember. And the reason is that I stopped reading quite a few books because I, I, I approached the reading a lot as an experiment. So I have my, my Notion book world with many titles and I get four or five periodically. I start reading and if I don't get inspired, Within you know the first two or three chapters, I just um, I just let it go, so I don't get that anxiety of finishing the book. Yeah, same here. I don't really care if I finish a book or not. I'm just reading it for the ideas. Just you know, I'll flip around, inside out, upside down, left, right, middle, and beginning, whatever. Just read different parts of it. What fictional place would you most like to go to? I'm terrible to with those questions, man. Fictional place. Give me an example. So fictional place could be like Narnia. It could be like the Shire and the Lord of the Rings. It could be that weird interdimensional place from Interstellar. It I would could... want to get to where Avatar was shot, like the planet. Was was Avatar the name of the planet or, or just the name I forgot of the, the name of the planet, but that was the name of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, that one. It'd be, it'd be cool to see a bunch yeah. of blue, blue people going around and flying on huge bats. What languages do you speak? Italian and English. If you were, were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Oh, man, an eggplant for sure. Nice. I love eggplant. Yeah. Spicy eggplant. <laughs> Delicious. Uh, Lars, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? I think LinkedIn is the best place. I'm on Twitter too, but it's mostly LinkedIn. Awesome. I'll be sure to you know link to your profile and link to your, your website and your podcast and all that stuff. Uh, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I appreciate having you here. And it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 